Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to Recall This Book, where, in the usual order of things, we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Today's episode, though, like our recent crossover episode with High Theory, and our upcoming conversation with the fabulous Australian novelist Helen Garner, is a daring deviation falling right in the middle of our collaboration month. So today, we're so pleased to feature the spanking new podcast, Novel Dialogue. If you like what you hear, then navigate over to NovelDialogue.org to subscribe on its website or subscribe to it in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's two words, Novel Dialogue. The podcast, which debuted in March 2021, was born in the pandemic out of a long-distance collaboration between Arthi Vade of Duke and, well, let's just roll the tape. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast that brings novelists and critics together to explore the making of novels and what to make of them. I'm John Plotz, and you'll be hearing from my partner in pod, Arthi Vade, in upcoming episodes. Today, I'm going to be serving as a third wheel for a conversation between my old friend and teacher, Bruce Robbins. Hello, Bruce. And the great Turkish novelist, Orhan Pamuk. So, hello, Mr. Pamuk. Hello, Um, pleased to be here. It's so such a delight to have you both here. So how do novelists think about talking to the scholars who study and teach their work? Well, I once heard it called inviting a cow to a butcher's convention, but I hope at least some novelists think otherwise. And we're so grateful that one of those generous novelists who can not think of themselves as being sliced up is uh, Mr. Orhan Pamuk, whose novels include Silent House, The White Castle, The Black Book, The New Life, My Name is Red, Snow, The Museum of Innocence, A Strangeness in My Mind, and The Red-Haired Woman. Mr. Pamuk has received a host of awards and honors far too numerous to mention. And of course, in 2006, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. 
He's been rightly praised for his political acuity, his courage, his postmodern experimentation, and the complexity of his aesthetic vision. This is all true, and yet I wish I could convey to you and to him the thrill it was for me first to read his 1994 novel, The New Life, which is a story about switched identities and bus journeys into parts unknown. And I read that novel just as I was beginning my own adulthood, my first real adult job, and it crystallized so many things for me about the seemingly solid but actually all too permeable boundaries between people and also the way that the lure of the open road, I have always loved a long bus trip, is also the allure of simply a time for not being yourself. Um, so both he and Bruce Robbins are professors of the humanities at Columbia University. And Bruce uh, uh, is a celebrated and profoundly influential literary scholar, author of such pathbreaking books as The Servant's Hand, English Fiction from Below, and Upward Mobility and the Common Good, towards a literary history of the welfare state. Um, so with that very brief, inadequate introduction, I will simply stand back and say, Bruce and Mr. Pamuk, have at it. Your last novel, Orhan, A Strangeness in My Mind, is the story of a working class man from central Turkey who comes to Istanbul and makes a living selling yogurt and boza, which is a mildly fermented drink, in the street. One distinctive thing about this novel is the seriousness with which it deals with people at the bottom of society. You've said, in fact, that you deliberately excluded from the novel any middle-class characters. Was this an experiment for you? Were you commenting on something the novel as a genre has not been able to do? It was intentional that uh, art of the novel is really a middle class or what Flaubert used to call bourgeois art. That is, he didn't refer to novels as bourgeois art, but it's a middle class thing. And even when the novelist pretends that he is representing um, the dispossessed, um, it is the middle class who's doing the talking. It is the middle class, at least the novel addresses the middle class readers, but it is this is not what I meant. In fact, I deliberately decided that in a strangers in my mind, I'll do my best only to focus on lower classes, culturally lower classes, economically lower classes. Um, as I was writing the book, I had a, a, a chat with my British editor uh, at Faber, and we were just talking, and I said, and what about middle class characters? Who are the middle class characters in that? And I said, Although I did not prepare it my, uh, this way, I suddenly gave a radical answer. There won't be any middle-class characters in my novel. Uh, maybe I'll give you this example. Uh, um, um, you know, when I was writing or planning for um, Strangers in My Mind, um, uh, one of my models or interesting um, work, uh, um, cultural products was this famous film, The City of God, which is about the favelas of Brazil or shanty towns. Uh, I visited uh, those favelas before I wrote the novel, after I wrote the novel, in fact, and, uh, and, I, and, and after the film, there was a City of God tour in uh, in Rio de Janeiro, meaning, you know, we'll take you to the places where 
since my novel is uh, is also is essentially about or one first beginning of the novel is the making of the shanty towns of Istanbul immigration to Istanbul from urban uh, from rural areas uh, i this is how my mind worked i wanted to write uh, um, this whole process i researched i talked to so many people i had also research assistance for the first time for this novel uh, so lots of people were um, uh, helping me. I was doing interviews with yogurt vendors, but I was also picking up details that I would say universal, that details that also happen, also you can find, or also you can refer to in uh, uh, Haravi. This is the Haravi is the shanty town, famous shanty town of Bombay, which I've been to twice too. Uh, so wh why am I telling all this? Um, because uh, perhaps intellectual um, um, decisions as I wrote Strangers in my mind, and one of them was uh, in City of God, there was a journalist, a middle-class person who was living in, in the favela and, and writing about uh, reporting the events. In fact, it's based on a huge, thick book, which is not successful in translation, perhaps because the film edited the book so much. But I understand the middle-class person was too apparent in the novel while he disappeared in the film. Anyway, I decided I did not want a middle-class journalist, intellectual, who is interpreting, who is giving meaning to complex um, whatever is happening in the shantytown. I don't, I don't like uh, political novels which pretend to represent, represent the lower classes when they have uh, strong-voiced, middle-class, brave uh, characters or reporter characters. Though, uh, as we saw in our political novel class, it, this is almost impossible, something impossible to achieve. That is, to write a novel that uh, about lower classes which doesn't address neither it uh, doesn't address or it doesn't represent the middle classes so in that seminar which we taught last semester you seemed especially interested in novelists like turgenev and conrad and what they did or didn't do with the poor and the socially marginal uh people who would not be included among the novel's readers and you you referred a few times to our colleague Gayatri Spivak's question, can the subaltern speak? I wonder if you could say something more about that interest of yours, uh, how you see that theme in, in the novels that you enjoy in the history of the novel. After I wrote A Strangers in My Mind, I was uh, again busy, more, my mind was still busy with this problem of representing the others, the lower classes. Uh, and the more you think about this, the more you be, uh, the, uh, naturally, uh, the more you think of what is political novel, because that is the ambition or pretension of the political novel to represent the unrepresented, not represented. Um, those, uh, as you said, Karl Marx, 18th century, Louis Napoleon's, uh, um, what he wrote about Louis Napoleon's coup d'etat, he said, um, about they were not represented, um, so others represented that. More or less, political novel is, uh, unfortunately, is about those who are not represented. We 
novelists represent them. And, and I like this subject. And I, after, um, uh, after a strangers in my mind, I deliberately wanted to have a, a, a political novel class, not only because it is also related to what I'm writing, what I, the, the novel I finished now, a strange, um, uh, Nights of Plague, but it's also about let's see what happened in political novels. And in, do you remember, in the after, towards the end of each class, I would say, well, we're finishing this novel. Where are the dispossessed? Where are the poor? Who is talking here? The most interesting political talk comes from the middle class intellectuals. Poor, especially in, for example, Conrad's Nostromo, they disappear in the caves. Tribes, Conrad, in a cynical way, tribes disappeared in cave, in mines, and and then not much. There is not much said about them, though. These novels are highly respectable, highly classical political novels. I'm not here to trash them, but I'm here to, um, in an ironical way, crack their position, crack their structures and tell something to the students. In fact, we've been teaching together almost 10 years, Bruce, and this was this year in this political class, for the first time I felt that we are, you know, doing that. Something beautiful in a seminar. Not only we are teaching something, but we are also discovering something. In fact, that political novel only works with a strong middle class voice, middle class audience. Also, and it's better to have a middle class interpreter who is saying, "Oh, this is happening because of this. This is happening because it's also complex." Um, this is very nice to hear. Uh, I have to say, I mean, I also uh, can't tell you how much I've enjoyed uh, teaching that course we did this last term. But before that, in the course we taught um, on the art of the, the art of the novel, we always taught Dostoevsky's Demons, which some would say is the greatest, one of the greatest political novels ever ever written. And we actually didn't find room to put that into our course on the political novel. I wonder whether you would like to say something about uh, Dostoevsky's Demons, which clearly is a uh, a novel that you have very strong feelings about and that we've taught yes. each time. <clears throat> well, what one likes about Dostoevsky, and it is unique in that, I'll have two things to say about Dostoevsky, really, or three things. First, he has this power to contradict himself. He is carried, away, carried by his imagination. Although his mind is full of ideas, as we can see from uh, his political writings, I have read the diary of a writer. You know, he was filling his um, a newspaper and writing almost all everything in a newspaper, and they were very interesting. And you see that Dostoevsky has uh, a, a mind full of problems, actuality or political problems, westernization, this, freedom, the Tsar, political problems, the new book, he's so busy. Uh, uh, his mind, while he has also very strong ideas, but he is a better novelist than his strong ideas. So he begins to write an idea, illustrate an idea, something, you know, uh, some demonic novelistic impulse makes him write something that contradicts that idea. And then you respect the guy, you like the guy. Then he has, in spite of many, 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 many ideas that we all have in our political world, especially in non-Western world, 
or the world that always fights with West, like uh, on the peripheries of Europe or West, then Hera begins writing in such a way that is carried by the strength of his imagination and dares to contradict. So you immediately understand that even um, his early novel, novels where the characters are um, there to illustrate his big ideas, he cannot stop uh, contradicting his big ideas. Then you like the guy. Uh, and, so, and, go ahead. Uh, um, you remember at the, towards the end, or I for uh, um, towards the end of the process, this middle class intellectual, uh, um, uh, um, in the end, he has uh, he is a westernizing uh, a liberal guy. Dostoevsky is supposed to hate him, but we discovered in the class that Dostoevsky had so much tenderness to this guy who misspent his life with uh, fancy westernization ideas. But Dostoevsky, in spite of contradicting, although this will contradict his big ideas, he cannot help being a novelist. He cannot help uh, um, and continues to, uh, uh, his mind operates more like a novelist rather than a person with ideas, though he is a person with ideas. Um, I'm going to go off script for a second and say that those who know and love Snow as much as I do will recognize a little bit of him in Turgot Bay, I think. Yes, yes. When I was writing Snow deliberately, I had um, possessed in mind. My, my, my novel talks to that. Um, and, and also, you always want me to talk about Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Turkey. And this is a subject I like. First, there is this big Anatolian plateau, not the Mediterranean Turkey, but the central Turkey is a mini Russia, mini, uh, mini central Russia. That is vast, vast lands by my standards, by Turkish standards, poor villages. Uh, um, and um, and then a local intellectual um, who is observing this poverty and also very traditional and very cons uh, conservative uh, and hopes for westernization, modernization, things happen, but things are happening very slow and this is a backward country, you are angry. Um, so there is this kind of affinity between um, Russian novel uh, what the, uh, and my world. Uh, also, uh, one of the, the Russian novelists were translated well into Turkish. What reason was Turkey was a member of NATO and, uh, and it was required that Turkish army had Russian professors or Russian, uh, uh, Russian to learn uh, required because perhaps espionage, because it's the, our neighbor and enemy. And all these uh, Russian professors that teach the Turkish military academy, when they retire, come to the publishers, and I translate something, and they are all translating Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, uh, and they all, uh, and it's always uh, funny uh, in 60s, 70s, when these retired stiff soldiers, uh, in the end, they're soldiers, who are uh, with, 
uh, with drunk writers who are always making fun, fun to their being right wingers or spies or uh, kicking them, it, um, or, or having making jokes with them. Anyway, so I think also um, these Russian translators, a generation of retired Russian um, um, professors, Russian teachers to military academies in Turkey were also good translators, really. They were not li uh, too literary, too pretentious. They were writing as if uh, their Turkish, their translations did not read like translations. Um, okay, let me change a little bit the subject. I know uh, you've just finished a novel you've been working on for years, Nights of Plague. Um, congratulations. Could you tell us a little bit about that oh. novel? I can endlessly talk about that. It's a novel set in an imaginary Ottoman island in 1901 during the third plague pandemic. For the last 40 years, I was dreaming of writing a novel that takes place during the plague. I've been researching, collecting material to write a novel that take a historical novel that takes place in Orient or in my world, in Ottoman Empire, during a hard, strong plague, plague pandemic. In the end, I said I decided that it, I will set it in 1901 when there is this third plague pandemic, the pandemic that is coming from either from India and China, and it's ideological immediately. There's a lot of Orientalist representation of evil coming from India and China, which is unfortunately partly true. The third plague pandemic and also cholera pandemic, pandemic uh, in uh, at the end of 19th century came from East and the distribution center for, for, for it was Hijaz, the pilgrimage place for all the Muslims of the world. And it was controlled by Ottoman Empire. Uh, um, uh, Ottoman Empire, the Hijaz plague, Quarantina uh, organization of the Ottoman Empire at the beginning of 20th century was the biggest Quarantina uh, uh, organization in the world. Ottomans were arm twisted by Western powers to filter all these Muslims who are spreading cholera or plague to the world. These subjects are, were so titillating for me. That is yeah, uh, Orientalism, Modernism, and also um, to, um, to impose quarantina to Muslims are, is, is even harder to impose quarantina to Europeans, uh, there were quarantine uprisings, people who are up, uh, against quarantine measures, say in Italy, in Poland, in Russia. Uh, 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 um, so I try to say, uh, and of, there is of course the whole ideology of fatalism. These Muslims do not care about that. They are not afraid. They are fatalists. They are not, they are not educated. All these subjects made the subject of imposition of quarantina to, uh, to Muslims is, in fact, very similar to subject of imposing modernity to Muslims. Look at the psychology of a well-meaning Muslim doctor. The Muslims don't like him in Ottoman Empire because he's friends to Christians. In, in more than 50% of Ottoman doctors were Orthodox, they were Christians. Muslims wanted and would go to the Sultan 
please send us Muslim doctors because you have plague, the doctor comes home and wants to see your wife's body. There is a bubon here, you don't want to show, you're all going to die. And to, to impose modern medicine, more, the practice of modern quarantine to these people is very hard. I cared about writing about the psychology of the person, the person who wants to modernize his country, who, while the country says, don't come, he's very conservative. Don't, we don't want you. We don't want modernity. While he thinks, just like the doctor who wants to impose quarantine. Well, it's good for you. You know, I want you to accept this. Uh, so the well-meaning, upper-class person who wants to say, revolutionize, westernize, secularize, liberize his country, has, is facing the same problem. He is doing something in spite of his people. Uh, and this is a subject that I like. Well, it sounds wonderful. Um, when are we going to get a chance to see it in English? Do you have any idea? Well, actually, uh, uh, just this in this last 10 days, Knopf had decided to publish it fall 2022. A bit late for me, but inevitable. It's just finished. Translation is just starting. Okay. Um, so looking back uh, on your career, I know maybe it's too soon for you to be looking back because you're just still playing with the cover and the maps and illustrations and so on. Um, one might say that uh, you began your career as a realist and you went through a kind of experimental or postmodern period. And maybe you would say you've more recently returned to realism. Is that a, a good way to describe your career or maybe not so good? Um, yes, but it, that's not the whole point. Yeah, if you look at it, uh, I am now writing closer to my early novels that uh, I am not writing in uh, high-bro, postmodernistic, um, ironical um, attitude, but it is more somehow my mind is more descriptive and is more busy with representation. But on the on, on the other hand. For example, there are so many novelists who start, you know, Dubliners, James Joyce, very classical. It's a short classical story. Suddenly he is writing the most experimental novel ever. My point, no novelist continues writing, no novel, respectable novelist who writes very old fashioned and the same novel, the same form all the time. Those who experiment in their youth, then say, for example, uh, the French novelist Arago, he wrote very experimental, surrealistic novels. Then, towards the end of his career, he reverted back to classical Zola-esque novels, uh, which were interesting, fun to read, uh, romances. Uh, I think he also wrote a very interesting novel, Aurelian. I think one of the best love novels ever written. It's a very thick novel. Uh, that is a beautiful love novel that I read almost in one sitting, which was, I think it's 800 pages or something. And I read that in English translation. Anyway, for example, at the end of his career, this Aragon, who was very much interested in art, surrealism, was friend of surrealism, is writing old-fashioned novels. I am not like him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that the, the experimental blood is still in me. Sometimes I address, 
when you write, uh, uh, sometimes I say, okay, now I'm writing strangers in my mind, representing the, uh, the, those who are not represented, dispossessed, doing so much, meaning history, sociology, development of shanty towns on Istanbul, busy with this kind of thing. It's harder to experiment that, uh, in that. Um, 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 uh, also, uh, giving us, again, a glimpse of the idea that art of the novel is very much a middle-class art. As you know, your novels are extremely popular in translation in many languages around the world. Uh, under the circumstances, what does it mean to be called a Turkish novelist? Do you think of yourself as a Turkish novelist? Uh, you know, of course, that you know you exist uh, as a world novelist. Um, do you resist the urge of writers, of readers, to see you as representing Turkey in the eyes of the world? I mean, what's your what's your relationship? It's a, a really damning question. First, don't ever forget that art of the novel is a very national thing. That sometimes I think that. Uh, in mid-19th century, humanity began, because of industrial revolution, humanity began to produce so much, so much objects, so much advertisement, so much biblo, so much things, so much divergence of objects that only novelists, novels put together the totality of things. Once there was a, there was an, a interview or a group of questionnaire by Guardian, the British newspaper, where they ask many writers, do you write for only your national uh, British readers or do you write you, uh, for other? They ask this because you know, uh, uh, all of these writers were translated in many, many languages. I remember Kazua Ishi, uh, Antonio Bayat said, I write for the nation. This is my priority. Of course, self-consciously or honestly, uh, uh, titillating, making happy the nationalist readers. They are happy. Okay, we are first British readers. And then you would make Turkish readers happy with that too. But I respect Kazuo Ishigura, who honestly said, I am writing for Universal. I am not only. And I think that is very, un my answer to that is more practical, really. I am, uh, I, I, I say, I am writing this. Who do you write for, Orhan? Or the Turkish readers? Or I am writing my new novel for those readers who had read my previous novel. Hmm. <laughs> okay. um, your love for the novel as a genre and your commitment to the novel as a genre has come through so strongly in everything you've said just now. I hesitate to ask you about politics, but I know that you have often uh, been asked about politics and um, sometimes have found yourself on the, the front pages of newspapers because of things that you've said about politics. Do you, would you prefer not to be asked about politics? No, I, I prefer to talk. I like talking about politics, but I don't like the risks. <laughs> yeah, well. Right. They may take away your passport. They may have a case and they may even shoot you in the leg or even in the head, you know. So you have to be careful in my part of the world. Also, they may threaten you and there's, there's endless emails or Twitter. And for example, two years ago, you know, three years ago with my girlfriend, 
I wrote something and they were, I think, partly government organized Twitter attacks, you know, not that threat, but something lesser, but makes you, gives you bad stomach, you know. We were going out to dinner. I said, look, how many? We said, three in a minute, you know, three new Twitters coming and they're all hate speech by American standards. Uh, now, if you return from dinner and it's still three, three Twitters in a minute, I, darling, we are in trouble. We return. It was not three. It was one in a minute. And I said, okay, tomorrow morning it will pass. It didn't <laughs> pass tomorrow morning. morning. It was forgotten. This is politics, you know. Uh, I am not shy about talking. I am also, but there are the consequences. People, I, it's not aesthetic that I don't like politics. It is the problems. And it, it, the, it, the, it's, there are so many ironies here. At the beginning of my so-called career, that uh, all the writers of previous generations who were well-meaning leftists, school teachers, uh, who were uh, uh, um, who had a much much narrow vision of Turkey, for them the models was leftism, or they, he was not even a leftist. John Steinbeck they, or Maxim Gorky, they would read that, imitate these novelists. Uh, uh, and I would read Proust or Nabokov in a with a guilty conscience, and and I begin writing like them, or Thomas Mann, uh, more upper class, middle class aesthetics, and these writers that I respected, the best of them was Yashar Kemal, who was friendly and was a better person. They, uh, but the previous generation of lefty writers begin to attack me. I was nervous. I was a bourgeois for them. And I also deliberately said, I will not talk about politics. But um, as I get famous, they begin to ask questions. Ten years later, I was known in Turkey, both Turkey and internationally, as a political novelist. Or maybe I'm exaggerated, but a novelist who is not who tackles politics a lot. Uh, and this is the situation. And partly, even if you have high aesthetic standards, it's uh, if you're a novelist, it's hard to avoid. Novels represent your country. When you're a novelist, you are seen as a representative of a troubled country, and then it's inevitable. Even if, oh, I don't like politics, I, I care, it's, it's not aesthetic. In a, you can do it in a Proustian way, or Proust was, by the way, Dreyfus, he was a political person I respect a lot. Uh, uh, so you cannot snob it. You, you cannot be a snob and say, well, I don't like politics. It would seem like you're a coward. And I'm also angry. And you, this is a good opportunity. You begin to talk. And then um, at one point, you have to slow down because it also overtakes. People think that I wrote snow. There are people who think that I wrote snow about because I um, because I want to make a point about Armenian genocide. It's not in the book. It's something that I said outside of the book. So, Mr. Pamuk, we always like to ask, what is your favorite treat? Uh, treat understood sort of Actually, liberally. Uh, well, uh, I am I'm consistent in that. I am a tea and coffee drinker, and I drink uh, enjoy coffee and tea all the time. There are no other favorite drinks. Sometimes, very rarely, uh, towards if my mind is operating very well and I need a bit of more creativity, and at 6 o'clock, I have a glass of wine and I continue to write till dinner. But this happens rarely. For me, the 
uh, I was a, uh, um, I used to smoke two packs of cigarette a day, and that was suicide. Then I enforced and I quit, and without smoking a single cigarette, I began and finished. My name is Red, and and and, uh, and I said to myself, if I can write a book like that without smoking a cigarette, then it's okay. Because it's hard to quit to a writer because all writers, whoever is smoking, they will immediately get, man, I can't write before if I'm not smoking. I'll tell you a funny story about giving yourself a treat. So I quit smoking before I begin writing My Name is Red, after which I was divorcing, political problems, my father died all in the same month, and I began smoking again. And then again, I imposed stop smoking, you know, so many times. But in the end, I'm successful now. In one of these times, I said to myself, uh, oh, you want to smoke, you know, you want to smoke. Then you have to tell a lie to yourself. I said, okay, I'll, if I have a treat, if something unusual happened, if I said myself, to myself after 50, okay, if I re if, since everyone was talking, I was not fantasizing about this. So I am also clarifying this. If I receive the Nobel Prize, after hearing it, I'll lit a cigar, not even a cigarette, I'll lit a cigar, I said to myself, some 15 years ago, or even more than that. And I was thinking that this will happen in 20 years. Sting! It happened too early. I'm in New York, and I received the news, and I immediately let him think about my cigarette. But it's 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm so happy. I don't want to smoke any cigarettes. I care about all the effort I gave to it. So I don't want to smoke, but I planned myself to smoke this day. So what do I do? And that day was a funny day for me anyway, because they put me into a car. We are driving, doing interviews, sometimes going to magazines, doing another interviews or TVs. That is a surrealistic day. But in the middle of that, I said, okay, I can't smoke, but I'll find a replacement because I, I also had um, prohibited, banned to myself for a, a milder thing, a, a, a fried potatoes. I thought this was as bad as cigarettes. So I, uh, so uh, uh, we were in a big uh, uh, car, and I stopped the car, just a regular diner in New York. We went inside, and I said, "Oh, oh a plate of fried potatoes instead of my uh, cigar or cigarette." Yeah. I eat a whole plate of potatoes, and that was my treat the day I received the Nobel Prize instead <laughs> of a cigarette. <laughs> so when you say a plate of potatoes, was it French fries or like a French pasta? Fries, yes. French fries. French okay. fries. I'm sorry for my English. No, no, no. It's okay. But I just In Lolita, Nobokov says, yeah. fr fries, French, a question. <laughs> Is it French? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm back wearing my RTB hat again. We really hope you enjoyed that. If you did, a treat is coming your way in two weeks when we feature Helen Garner's novel dialogue with Elizabeth McMahon. It only remains to say that Recall This Book is sponsored by the Mandel Humanity Center. Music comes from Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. Sound editing by Claire Ogden. Website design and social media by Nye Kim. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends about us and write a review or rate us on iTunes. Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The single most important way that word gets around for a modest, scholarly podcast like this one. So from all of us at Novel Dialogue, 
and from us at Recall This Book. Thanks for listening. Thank you.